Welcome to a Calvary Montclair Sermon Podcast. It is our desire that you will learn of Jesus, grow in Jesus, and share Jesus with other people. Service times are on Thursday evenings at 7 p.m. and on Sunday mornings at 9.30 a.m. For addresses and directions, please visit our website, www.cmontclair.com. We pray that you are blessed by the teaching of God's Word. Well, good morning. I'm thrilled to hear about your trip to Israel. About, I don't know, eight or nine years ago, I led a trip of high school students, about 40 or 50 of us. And we had people that were like selling old rings and just doing everything they could to go. And they all, when it was done, said, this is worth it. I'd go in a heartbeat. So Gethsemane is incredible, like Pastor Joe described. I loved walking through Hezekiah's tunnel. Took a boat on the Sea of Galilee. Was so moved, I got out of the boat and I just walked on the water. (laughs) Didn't work well for me, but I tried. If you have a chance to go and God provides resources, do it. It's game changing. Well, I enjoy having a conversation with people about beliefs, especially people who see the world differently. Get a chance to share your faith, but also learn something by getting challenged by people. That's how you grow. I was sitting in Starbucks not that long ago, kind of minding my own business, studying, researching, and I was sitting, imagine it's kind of a chair, and then there's a little coffee table, and then another chair right in front of me, about as far as like the two of us are. And this lady had this big yellow book with silver words on it. And the words were, God is not great. It's a book written by the late atheist Christopher Hitchens, New York Times bestselling books, probably one of the most influential atheists over the past 25 years and maybe like half century, really influential. Well, I just can't sit there with somebody reading something so provocative and at least engage this person in conversation. It's too much fun. <laughs> so I just kindly kind of leaned in. I said, hey, that looks like an interesting book. What's that about? Have you ever asked somebody a question and 15 minutes later they're still speaking and you're thinking, why did I open my stupid mouth? Well, this lady was clearly enamored with this book. She goes, oh, this is is a great book. It's kind of the book I've been looking for. And I said, well, what's it about? She said, well, it shows. The, The subtitle, by the way, is How Religion Poisons Everything. So we've seen how evolution and science have disproven faith. We've seen how Christianity and religion has been nothing but the bane of human existence. And she's going on and on. Finally, I I stopped her. I said, hey, what does that book say about Jesus? She kind of paused and thought about it. And then she asked me a question. She said, okay, can you think of the nicest person you know? My late grandmother's image came to mind, just sweetest person arguably ever. And I said, yeah, my, my grandma. She goes, You have that person in mind. Jesus was like that person. Wasn't the son of God. Wasn't born a virgin. Didn't rise on the third day. He was just a really, really nice guy. And I paused and I can only think of one question to ask. I said, if Jesus was just a nice guy, why did they crucify him? I mean, even the Romans wouldn't crucify Mr. Rogers, right? Can you imagine, gosh, this guy Jesus, he picks up sheep, he talks to kids, he tells stories, he's so nice, he's making us feel bad. Let's torture him to death and make an example about niceness. I mean, honestly, there's some good challenges to our faith 
that we need to be ready to answer. The idea that Jesus was crucified because he's nice is not one of them. But it shows at its core that who Jesus is and who Jesus claimed to be is at the heart of the Christian faith. Uniquely, Christianity is based upon the identity of the person of Jesus. That's why Jesus said the most important question is, who do you say that I am? And the sign he would give would be the sign of Jonah, the death, resurrection on the third day. You see, other figures have told us how to get to truth. Other religious figures have told us how to get to God or the path of salvation. Jesus claimed to be God. And he claimed to be truth. And that our eternal destinies rest upon what we believe about him. And it's the resurrection on the third day that confirms his identity. That's why this series you're starting next week is so important. Because the identity of Jesus and this passion week culminating in the resurrection is at the heart of our faith. That's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 14, and 17, if Jesus is not risen, our faith is in vain. Don't waste your money going to Israel other than the fact that there is very good food there. Let me tell you, very, very good food. But spiritually, you're wasting your time if Jesus has not risen from the grave. Now, coming here this morning, a few of you have told me, say, hey, I've heard your father, Josh, speak a number of times on different topics, which is wonderful. My dad has been with Crew, Camps Crusade for Christ, 55 plus years, speaking, writing, teaching, debating. And some of you might know his story if you've, you've heard him speak. He grew up in a messed up family background. My grandfather, my dad's dad, was the town drunk. My dad did not know his father sober until my dad was in his, at least in his 20s. He drank like two full bottles of wine every single day, starting in the morning. My dad's older sister committed suicide. My dad was actually sexually abused by somebody who lived on their farm for seven years until he was strong enough, about 13, slammed the man against the wall and said, if you touch me again, I will kill you. And he meant it. Well, to make a long story short, my dad has always been a go-getter. He succeeded a lot of things in life, and someone challenged him with a Christian faith. And this is the 50s. He's like, I'm going to disprove this and show that it's false. So he had enough money to start traveling around the world before you could Google this stuff, obviously, and started looking at ancient manuscripts, investigating fulfilled prophecy, came to the conclusion that Christianity is actually true, and it changed his life, forgave his father, saw him come to Christ, forgave the man who sexually abused him. And my dad wrote a book in 72 called Evidence That Demands a Verdict. The evidence he was trying to disprove Christianity, he put it into a volume of the positive evidence for Christianity. Nobody would publish it. Now it's over 4 million copies sold in 40-some languages around the world. And why am I telling you this? Because this past fall, about a year and a half ago, my dad and I updated it together. And I asked him, I said, Dad, how does the evidence now for Christianity compare to half a century ago plus when you set out to disprove Christianity but were amazed at the evidence? And he said to me, he goes, Son, there's a tsunami of evidence now, if you know my dad, he's never one for understating anything in the history of the world. Every, like the cup is 99% full. But he used this analogy. I'm like, a tsunami of evidence. That's interesting. So when the book came out, I decided I was going to write an article on his behalf, have him edit it and approve it and say, yep, that's what I would say. Submitted it to Fox News called There's a Tsunami of Evidence for the Christian Faith. 
it launched the updated version of Evidence for a Week into number 16 or 17 on all books on Amazon. Now, that's incredible, which tells me we're in an age where people are hungry. We're told this is a post-truth era. I think people still want to know truth. If we love them and we care for them and we're ready with an answer, like the Bible says to be in 1 Peter 3.15. So this morning, we don't have a ton of time. We're going to briefly look at some of this evidence that is so compelling and has grown over the past few years and I think continues to grow. This is important because if you turn on Discovery Channel or the Science Channel or National Geographic, you'd kind of get the impression that they found these ancient gospels that were secretly kept out of the New Testament or they've uncovered new evidence that undermines some big historical event tied to the New Testament. Well, there are challenges out there we need to address. But I would argue, the further we get away from the time of Jesus, and the more the science seems to grow, the more powerful case we have for the New Testament, the resurrection of Jesus, and the claims that Jesus made. Now, the moment we start to talk about the evidence for the resurrection, there's a barrier that's in a lot of people's minds in our culture, and it's a barrier of what we call worldview, meaning... There are certain facts around the resurrection we're going to look at that are almost universally accepted by scholars. People don't disagree on the facts, but the problem is what follows from the facts imply this supernatural worldview. But you and I live in this enlightened age where we know miracles don't happen, so there must have been something else besides the resurrection. Do you see how this operates in people's minds? Well, I teach full-time at, at Biola University, Talbot uh, School of Theology, and I still teach high school part-time at a Christian school in San Juan Capistrano, Bible, worldview, apologetics classes. And probably a dozen years plus ago, I just got tired of seeing my students graduate, go to the university, and have their faith just rocked either by a fellow classmate or by a professor or somebody on campus teaching a very different worldview and they weren't ready for it. So I got together with a friend of mine, Brent Kunkel, and I said, we need to take our students to the most godless, secular place we can think of, bring in atheists, agnostics, let them speak to our students, challenge them to defend their faith so when they get on the campus, they're ready for this. So we took a group of about 25 high school students to Berkeley. <laughs> and it was great. We've also gone to Salt Lake City and knocked on doors, which is really fun to talk to people about Jesus because they've knocked on our doors. Yeah. Even when they're busy, they feel bad and like, all right, let's talk about Jesus because they know how it feels to have someone slam a door in their face. Well, we're going this next year back to Berkeley again. And one of the first times that we went, we brought about 25 high school students. And we interacted with this atheist agnostic a group on campus at the University of California, Berkeley. And when we were done, these two students asked me, because I was coming back two weeks later to do some training with this group. They said, hey, you're coming back. Can we get coffee and talk about this stuff further? I said, sure. So we came out. If you've ever been on Berkeley's campus, kind of Sproul Plaza's downtown. There's this big kind of grassy knoll on the right side. And uh, we're just sitting out there talking. And I'll never forget what this student, he was a PhD physics student, said to me, he goes, look, you believe in a resurrection. He goes, doesn't science tell us that when people die, they stay dead? Now, you understand the objection, right? He's at 
Berkeley studying physics. There's this authority of science. And if you're telling me to be a Christian, I have to believe Jesus rose from the grave. This violates science. There's no way you're going to get me to believe this fairy tale. Can you see how in his mind it's like science versus faith? And here's the interesting thing. He's right that science shows when somebody dies, they stay dead. In fact, do we need science to tell us this? <laughs> Not really, right? Not at all. People knew this long before the scientific revolution that dead people stay dead. I said, you're right. What science can show us is that when somebody dies, they stay dead naturally. But the resurrection is not a claim that Jesus rose naturally. It's a claim that Jesus rose supernaturally. I said, now, if there is no God, you're right. A resurrection is impossible. But if there is a God, then a resurrection is possible. So for you to fairly rule out the possibility of a resurrection before you even look at the evidence, you have to prove that God doesn't exist. Otherwise, it sounds like you're beginning the investigation with your mind already made up. That doesn't sound very open-minded to me. So here's a way to think about it. How many of you been to Sequoia National Forest? up kind of by Hume Lake outside of Fresno. You know, redwoods are the tallest trees, but sequoias are the biggest tree by volume. And what's believed to be, I want to make sure I get the name right, what's believed to be the biggest tree ever is called the General Noble Tree. Now it's only a stump. And it takes 18 people, hand in hand, 18 grown men, hand in hand to circle this thing. To match. It's almost like the base of the tree is kind of this size here, but rounded out is how big it is. 18 people surrounding it. Well, in the 1800s, explorers came across this tree. And they went back and they told other people further east about this tree, and people didn't believe them. They're like, no, you can't have a tree that big. So they came back and they chopped down the tree, unfortunately. By the way, this tree is 3,200 years old, which means it probably started growing about 200 years before the time of King David. That's how old this tree is. So they came back, they chopped it down. And like a pie that's cut up into different plate pieces, they took huge logs, brought it to the Chicago World Fair in 1897, reconstructed part of it to show people physically what had happened. But guess what? Nobody believed them. To this day, it's still considered, Google it, the great California hoax. People didn't believe the tree was real. Now you think they have eyewitness testimony, they have empirical evidence, why didn't they believe them? Because they had certain preconceived notions about the way the world works. So rather than following the evidence, they ignored the evidence because they believed that trees can't be that big. This is exactly what my friends at Berkeley were doing. They said, we know there's no God. We know God can't perform miracles. We know that dead people stay dead. So they closed off the evidence before there was even presented to them. How is that possibly open-minded? 
Now, I'm not saying we should begin an investigation with, well, we know Jesus rose from the grave, let's go find the evidence. Historically speaking, that could be just as dishonest. Rather, we should say, what are the facts? What do they best explain? And are we open to this being a supernatural intervention into history? If so, I think the evidence is pretty powerful. Now, if Jesus did rise from the grave, the reason this question, God bless you, my child. (laughs) The reason this question is so important is because it actually answers three of the biggest questions we have all had about life. One question is if Jesus rose from the grave, I think it actually tells us that God exists. So everybody's looked out at the stars and said, God, are you there? Is there really God? Well, there's great arguments for the existence of God. So the beginning of the universe points towards a beginner. The fine-tuning of the universe points towards a fine-tuner. The information in DNA points towards an author of life. The moral law points towards a moral law giver. There's a number of arguments that can be given that point towards the existence of God. But if Jesus rose from the grave, we kind of get God thrown in there. Now, think about it this way. So I drive a Ford Fusion. Bought the hybrid to save gas money. Imagine we go walking outside and Pastor Joe and I, he says, thanks for coming today. This is awesome. Walks me in a car and there's a huge dent in my car. And I go, what happened? He goes, you know, I saw it during the service, but I couldn't stop it. I said, what was it? He goes, well, I saw a feather floating down from the sky. It hit your car and it just dented your Ford. Now, there's no way I'd believe that. If it was a Chevy, I might, but if it's a Ford, there's no chance. <laughs> now, of course, he wouldn't say that because an effect such as a damage to a car needs a sufficient cause, right? Well, if somebody predicted ahead of time, said, I'm going to die and I'm going to raise on the third day, this person is dead, put into a tomb, three days later, that tomb is empty and appears to people. This cries out for a cause that 2,000 years ago, even today we don't have that power with science, that has power over life and death. This is a divine cause. If Jesus rose from the grave, it points towards the existence of God. God is real. But second, if Jesus rose from the grave, we know which religion is true. We actually know which religion is true. You remember at the beginning I said, it's only Jesus of all great major world religions who claim to be God in human flesh, if he made that claim, rose from the third day, then in one sense, you don't have to investigate all the rest of the religions of the world. You have God's divine stamp of approval on the message of Jesus. I think you should read the Quran. I think you should read the Book of Mormon. Of course, we should study these. But in terms of investigation, if Jesus really rose from the grave, we know that Christianity is true. God exists. Christianity is true. Third, we know that there's life after death. We know that this life is not all there is. And life continues after the grave. Now, some of you might remember the 19, early 1990s movie called Flatliners. Do any of you, number one, remember this and two are willing to admit it in church that you've seen Flatliners? Okay, good. All right. You, you always got to qualify this. You never know. This is a movie with uh, Kiefer Sutherland, Oliver Platt, Julia Roberts, and Six Degrees from, or people from, Kevin Bacon. You know the story. And they're, they're medical students, and they want to know if there's life after death. So instead of studying philosophy or religion, you know what they do? They flatline each other's hearts 
and then resuscitate the person back to life and ask them, what do you see on the other side? Now, obviously, a morbid experiment. Don't try this at home. But they go down like 15 seconds, 30 seconds, two minutes. By the end of the movie, they're pushing the four-minute barrier where you can have permanent brain damage. Well, their thinking is morbid, but it kind of logically makes sense. If you want to know what's on the other side, talk to someone who's died, been there, and can come back and tell us about it. Well, Jesus didn't die four minutes. He died and rose on the third day. It says to his apostles in his final speech, John 14 through 17, what does he say? He says, I'm going to prepare a place with my Father for you. Friends, if Jesus rose from the grave, God is real. Christianity is true. And there is life after the grave. Can you see how important this question of the resurrection of Jesus is? Now, some of the evidence, I'm going to give you a little acronym. I really believe that what 1 Peter 3.15 says is true. To sanctify Christ as Lord in our hearts, always be ready with an answer for those who ask and give it with gentleness and respect. I've thought through in my mind some of the most common questions people will ask, and I'm ready with an answer to give them when people ask me. So many times on a plane, I pull out a napkin, or I'm just sitting somewhere, and someone asks, oh, good question. Here's what I think about it. What do you think? It's amazing when we are ready with an answer how much God can use us to have spiritual conversations with people. So there are three simple facts surrounding the resurrection that I think every Christian should be ready to share. Three, there's more than this, but three simple facts. Number one is Jesus died on the cross. Friends, almost all scholars agree that this is historical. Now, why would they agree almost unanimously Jesus died on the cross? Well, one reason is the medical evidence. You know, when Jesus died, what does John alone describe that he saw coming from his side? Blood and water. Now, for years, if you read early church fathers, they kind of turned this into a metaphor. Well, it was the water of baptism and all this kind of stuff because they didn't understand. Well, in 1986, in the Journal of the American Medical Association, one of the most prestigious medical journals in the world, 1986, by the way, you can read this online. The journal article is available online. It's called On the Physical Death of Jesus. On the Physical Death of Jesus. A medical doctor, a historian, and a theologian got together and tried to analyze the type of death that somebody would experience medically by being crucified. And other doctors have done this as well. Well, one thing they conclude is that you don't die from blood loss. You die from being asphyxiated, which is why sometimes people would be on the cross for days, for days. It was a public way of humiliating and shaming and putting fear into somebody for challenging the Roman Empire. You were crucified in a public place, totally stripped naked to be humiliated. Well, what would happen is you'd have nails or rope through your hands and feet, and you can't breathe if you're extended like this. You'd have to push up, breathe, exhale, back down, sometimes for days to stay alive. So to speed up death, what would they do? They'd come, you know the story, and they would shatter the shins. You could no longer breathe, and you would asphyxiate. Well, it describes in this medical article that when somebody died the way Jesus would have died, 
medically a watery type substance called the pericardial sac surrounds the heart. So if somebody died the way Jesus died and was pierced with a spear in the side as the way it's described happened to Jesus, guess what would come out? Blood and water. John didn't know what he was describing. Who was the doctor, by the way? Luke was, not John. He just describes it. 2,000 years later, roughly, doctors study this and say, here's a very plausible way to describe this, to account for this. It would only happen at the point of death. So there's medical evidence that Jesus died. Second, there's all the New Testament writings. You have the four Gospels. You have Paul's writing. You have all these New Testament writings that I won't go into now, but we could argue are very reliable historical documents. And then you have other church fathers in the late first century, early second century, describing the death of Jesus, people like Ignatius and Clement of Rome. And then you have non-Christian writers, like the Roman Tacitus, early second century, the Jewish writer Josephus, end of the first century, describing the death of Jesus. But even beyond all that, which is enough for me to put the nail in the coffin, pun intended, is that, think about this. David Strauss was a skeptic, and he believed in the legend hypothesis, but he said the idea that Jesus survived is nonsense. He said, can you imagine Jesus, after all he went through with the whipping and the beating and the crucifixion and 100 pounds of spices put on him, put in a tomb, stone rolled across it. On the third day, taking the spices off himself, moving the stone aside, beating up the Roman guard, walking to his apostles and say, hey, I've been risen from the grave. If you believe in me, you can have a resurrection body like mine. Do you think they would believe in Jesus? They would say, get the man a doctor. <laughs> Clearly, Jesus was dead. He was dead. We know this purely from a historical standpoint. But second, what's interesting is we actually know the tomb was empty. Now, I'm not going to go into too much detail, but do you realize how amazing it is just to think that we know the very name and position of the person who buried Jesus 2,000 years ago? And who is that person? Joseph of Arimathea. He was a part of the Sanhedrin. He was rich. We have his exact name of the person who buried Jesus. And I don't think that story was made up. Why? Do you think the apostles would make up a story of an honorable burial from a person from the very group that condemned Jesus unjustly to death? No. They would never make that up. Friend, Jesus died. He was put in Joseph's tomb. But we also know the tomb is empty. Now, I'm aware of about 20 to 21 arguments for the empty tomb. We won't go into all those. Don't worry. If you want to hear all of them, you can come study with me at Biola. I do a three-day class on the resurrection. We just go into depth on this. It's really fun. And if your thought is that sounds fun, then you're the kind of person who should come study with me because I think this stuff is fun. Well, here's three of the arguments that I think are good reason to believe the empty tomb. Number one is think about this. Where was Jesus crucified? Calvary Hill. Calvary Hill, what city? Golgotha. What city? Golgotha. Jerusalem, right? Now, if this story wasn't true and the apostles made it up, it means the body is actually somewhere. 
where would be the hardest place in the world within weeks to march right back to and start proclaiming an empty tomb and a resurrection? Where would be the hardest city to do this? Jerusalem. They go to Australia. They go to China. They go to Texas. They go somewhere else. They march right back to the very city of Jerusalem. And if you read the first speech in Acts 2, you know what the apostles say? They say, this Jesus is risen, and he did these events in public, and you yourselves know it's true. You see the confidence of the apostles. We're going right back to the place he did miracles, publicly crucified, buried in a known tomb to proclaim that he is risen. That only makes sense if the tomb is empty. All the opponents had to do was show the body, and Christianity was done. But second, what was the first naturalistic explanation that the religious leaders gave to discount the resurrection. The apostles stole the body. Now think about it. If they're claiming the apostles stole the body, what are they saying about the status of the body in the tomb? It's the body's gone. The tomb is empty. The very first explanation for what happened assumes the body's gone and the tomb itself is empty. So they preach in Jerusalem amazing confidence. The first rebuttal concedes the tomb is empty. But third, who discovered the empty tomb? Mary. Mary and the other women. You've probably read this a hundred times. Has it ever struck you how significant this is? Because in this culture, a woman's testimony was not considered as reliable and trustworthy as a man's. Now, last time I said this, I said a woman's testimony was not as reliable as a man's. I caught myself and I said it wasn't considered as reliable as a man. Save my marriage with one word. No, I'm kidding. It's not that delicate. Now, this, historians have something they call the criterion of embarrassment. Meaning, historians will look at an ancient document and they ask, does the writer include material that's embarrassing to his or her own character? Now, if a writer includes this, what do we conclude about the integrity of the writer? That this writer cares about truth. I'm willing to report truth, even if it sheds me in a negative light. So you look at the Gospels, it's filled with embarrassing material. Disciples fall asleep at Gethsemane. Jesus calls Peter Satan. Disciples argue over who's the greatest. They don't understand the teachings of Jesus. I mean, it's all over the Gospels. When he gets to the empty tomb, the tomb was discovered by women. Now think about this. If they're inventing a story, that's not true. They obviously want people to believe it. It would be counterproductive to their message to unanimously invent women discovering the empty tomb. They were special women. They were special women. That's right. We will definitely give them credit for being special women. But in that culture, there were still women. It didn't matter. That would, it makes no sense for the men to invent this. So why do they tell the story? Because the women actually discovered the empty tomb. You start to put these pieces together. They go to Jerusalem. They preach it. The first response is, well, they stole the body, concedes the tomb is empty. And they report the tomb being discovered by women, friends that are not inventing the story. They are reporting what they saw and really believed was true. So we have Jesus dying. We have this empty tomb. And then you have all these people claiming that they had seen the risen Jesus. 
You have the apostles with Thomas, without Thomas. You have the seven. You have, again, the appearance to women. The appearance of 1 Corinthians 15 to 500 people. And I tell you, one of the things that has changed, my father and I were talking about this, is let me, I'm going to phrase this very carefully so you understand how scholars think about the resurrection. Let me phrase it carefully. Virtually all scholars agree that the disciples had experiences that they believed were of the risen Jesus. Did you see how I phrase this? Not all scholars agree Jesus rose from the grave. But they virtually all agree that the disciples had experiences that they believed were of the risen Jesus. And it transformed their belief system to launch the Christian faith. So if you don't think Jesus rose from the grave, what do you have to do? You have to come up with some other account that can explain the belief that they had these appearances and transformed them into proclaiming the Christian faith. Do you see how this works? So, for example, people will say, well, the Apostle Paul was really schizophrenic. And they'll come up with a story to explain how schizophrenia accounts for his transformation. Or there's one that says, like, psychologically, you can be so against a movement that you have a psychological transformation and end up embracing it. In fact, years ago, my father and I document this more than the carpenter. Um, I won't mention it, but there's a Christian apologist debating a professor who's just known for being this antagonistic, anti-Christian professor. Most professors are not that way, but every school is going to have one or two, at least the public or private schools that aren't distinctly Christian. And they were having a debate at a, at a fraternity, and they were talking about the resurrection. And the Christian apologist put forward the case that Paul saw Jesus, and it transformed his life. And the skeptical professor, he goes, look, he goes, here's what happened. Sometimes you can be so against a movement that you end up embracing it. Sometimes you can hate a movement so much that you have a transformation and end up believing it. And Paul just stands up. He goes, sir, you better be careful. You're about to become a Christian. (laughs) What's the point? He had to come up with an explanation to explain Paul's transformation. But when you start pressing it, it makes no sense makes no sense. In fact, some people say, well, Jesus only appeared to those who believed in him. No, he didn't. What about Thomas? What about James, the brother of Jesus? And what about Paul? A friend of mine was like, well, if I was Jesus, I'd show up to Pilate. I'd do much more public uh, appearances. And I said, well, let me just make sure I understand. So you're telling me that you know better how to start a movement than Jesus, and even if you don't think he's the son of God, more people call themselves followers of him than anyone who's ever lived, and you know what he should have done differently, please let me know. (laughs) I mean, even if you don't think Jesus is God, that's absurd. He started a worldwide movement, has changed lives. Friends, Jesus died, he was buried, tomb is empty, and you had these radical lives transformed. There is no other explanation that can account for the facts as we know it. But you know what prevents many people from believing? Is the cost of believing in Jesus. The supernatural reality of believing in Jesus. Rather than the facts themselves. That's the challenge for so many people. The evidence is there. If you have eyes to see and ears to hear, Jesus has risen from the grave. 
He lived, he died, he was buried, tomb is empty, and appeared to people and turned the world upside down. You might be thinking, wait a minute, earlier you said the apostles stole the body. How do we know that this isn't possible? My answer is, of course it's possible. Anything is possible. But I'm not interested in what's possible. I'm interested in what's reasonable and probable. You go into court of law and say, isn't it possible this happened? A judge is going to stop right there and say, we don't talk about possibility here. Tell me what's reasonable. Tell me what's probable. Tell me why your theory explains the facts the best. So I'm supposed to believe the bunch of fishermen and a tax collector and a zealot get together, fight off a Roman guard, push the stone away, bring out this body, intentionally tell a lie because now they're all deceivers to get themselves put in harm's way and some of them martyred. That's what you'd have to believe if this was a conspiracy by the apostles. Friends, that makes no sense. By the way, if the apostles made this up, then how do we account for the conversion of James or Paul? You can't. They weren't part of the twelve. Perhaps the biggest explanation is hallucinations. There are scholars that write books and debate this. Maybe they had an hallucination of the risen Jesus. There's a huge problem with this. There's a number of problems. One is hallucinations do not appear to groups. You can no more share a hallucination than you can share a dream. Sorry to those of you who love the movie Inception. <laughs> you cannot share a dream. I mean, imagine if you could. I could save a lot of money. Honey, I just dream we're in Hawaii. Go to sleep. Join me. Let's walk together on the beaches of Honolulu. Right? It doesn't work that way. You can't share a dream. You can't share a hallucination. They're individual, subjective, like, projections of what's in your mind. By the way, hallucinations project what's already in your mind. So that still doesn't explain why they came to believe Jesus rose from the grave. It doesn't explain the thing it's meant to explain. There's a number of hypotheses. If you could Google this or get in a conversation or watch videos on YouTube, there's endless. A professor at UCI said maybe Jesus had a twin. It was Thomas, and he was crucified in his place. There's that theory. There's what's called the copycat theory. Maybe they went to the wrong tomb. I mean, there are endless theories. But none of these can explain the facts with as much power and clarity as Jesus rising from the grave. Now, I didn't come here to just give you facts. We have to know this. We have to be ready with an answer because God can use you and me in our conversations with people to remove barriers that prevent them from knowing the truth of the gospel. That's why we have to be ready with an answer. But it's not just about the facts, is it? I teach at this conference um, every chance that I get. It's something I deeply believe in called Summit. And you went a couple summers ago. One of our Summit students came front middle sitting up here. And uh, it's like a 12-day worldview apologetics conference for students. So if you're 16 to 25 or have a kid or a grandkid and you want to learn like how to defend the faith and think Christianly, it's 12 fun but worldview-filled days to ground a young person in their faith. There's just nothing like it. And I was speaking at a conference. I did this atheist role play 
where I put on glasses, become an atheist, and the student came up to me afterwards. He goes, oh, that was great. He goes, can we talk afterwards? And I was like, well, you got another session. He goes, I'm an atheist. I said, okay, let's go talk. So he walked outside, <laughs> right? I thought he was trying to get out of a session or whatever. I had no idea. Um, not the students ever do that. <laughs> so we sat on this couch out in front of this old hotel in Manitou Springs is where Summit takes place all summer. It's a really cool environment. And we're sitting out there, and we had a conversation, 15, 20 minutes. This kid grew up in a Christian home, had, was kind of, had basically walked away from his faith, and he's asking me all these apologetic questions. And I've just done this enough to think, I really have a hard time believing that the hang-up for this kid are the questions he's asking me. I said, I could be totally off base, but I'm sensing something else is going on besides the questions you're asking me. What's going on? And he goes, yeah, you're right. He goes, actually, I grew up in a Christian home. And I am going to a public university in the fall, and I've signed up for a fraternity. I'll never forget what he said next. He said, I just want to have fun in my life for a season. I thought, and I said to him, I said, now we're talking. It's not about the truth of this. It's about what you think the good life is, how you understand Christianity, and what you think is going to bring you real happiness. See, friends, the heart of the problem is the problem of the heart. We don't like to bow our knees. We don't like to humble ourselves. We don't like to say Jesus is God because that means you and I are not. We need to be ready with the evidence. But there are spiritual forces at play, Paul talks about in Ephesians chapter 6. And one way we defeat spiritual forces, Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 10, is we defeat strongholds by arguments, by truth. It's truth that sets us free. But I actually think it's not only knowing the truth of the resurrection, but it's embracing it that changes the way that we live. You actually believe Jesus rose from the grave. And it'll change your life. A friend of mine who's an evangelist, maybe you've heard of him, uh, we'll mention his name, but he told a story years ago about how his father, his, his mother had remarried. No, I'm sorry, his father had remarried. And his mother, I think it was his, so that makes it what? His mother-in-law calls him in the morning. Did I get that right? His dad remarried, stepmom, whatever it is. I literally cannot get any of those dynamics right. But you meant what I knew. <laughs> middle of the night his uh, stepmom right yeah. got it yes I got it his stepmom his father passed away his stepmom calls him in the morning and says hey your father passed away last night and he goes you know he's sad he's heartbroken he goes what happened he goes well your father sat up in bed he looked up in heaven and he repeated a line from 1 Corinthians 15 he said death where's your victory Death, where's your sting? Said it three times, laid down in bed, and breathed his last breath. That's how I want to go out. I thought he owned the fact that this life is not all there is. There is a God. Christianity is true. And eternal life is for those who believe in Jesus. Now, if I may give you one last thing, and I promise I'll wrap up because the timing for this is, I think, awesome. 
So I love superheroes. No surprise to any of those of you who, I don't know, read my blog or see me speak. I love superheroes. So coming up April 26th, I already bought tickets with my 14-year-old son. <laughs> At 6 in the morning, we bought them 27 minutes after it opened, and a bunch of theaters were already sold out for the latest installment of The Avengers Endgame. Now, this movie is 22 films in the making, over a decade. Probably one of the most expensive movies with a number of stars and the CGI ever, arguably. It's part two. Part one was called Avengers Infinity War. Now, what's interesting about Avengers Infinity War, think about this. The producers, Kevin Feige, are trying to tell the most epic film they can tell. So my question is, what moral is at the heart of this story they're trying to tell? Do you know what it is? If, how many of you saw Infinity War, the first movie? Okay, good, a lot of you did. If you haven't seen it, I'm gonna ruin it, but you've had plenty of time. <laughs> there is a question that runs through all almost three hours of Infinity War. You know what the question is? Through, for what reason can you sacrifice a human life? So the movie opens up, and it's Thor, who's being held by Thanos, and his brother Loki, he wants the Infinity Stone. Should I kill Thor or give up the stone? But then you have Scarlet Witch and Vision. Vision has a stone on his forehead, and Vision says, I need to give up my life so Thanos doesn't get the stone. But then you have Star-Lord, and you have... Gamora, and Gamora realizes in this movie that if Thanos gets her, he can sacrifice her for Infinity Stone. So she says to Chris Pratt, who plays Star-Lord, if Thanos gets me, I want you to take my life to save everybody else. There's another scene in the movie with Iron Man and Doctor Strange, where Doctor Strange has to make a decision. Will I let him take the life of Iron Man? Now, if you watch the movie, through the entire film is, when is it okay to take a human life? So the bad guy takes human life. What does Captain America say? We are not in the business of exchanging lives. At the heart of this epic film is, what is the value of a human life? Now, interestingly, when, uh, if you don't know the names of these movies, you're like, what is happening in church? So I apologize. <laughs> Just fo follow with me. I am going somewhere, okay? There's a scene where uh, Spider-Man and the rest of his crew basically have the glove almost off Thanos, and they could have ended it right there. Star-Lord, played by Chris Pratt, screws everything up, okay? Now, my daughter, who's 11, thinks Chris Pratt is really cute, and I said to her, I said, look what Chris Pratt did. And she goes, Dad, if it weren't for Chris Pratt, we wouldn't have part two. I was like... I just lost an argument to a hormone-filled 11-year-old girl. <laughs> I concede. Well, in this scene, what happens? They almost have the glove off, which means they would have de defeated Thanos. Star-Lord discovers that Thanos had sacrificed Gamora, his love, to get a stone. Remember what Star-Lord says? He looks at Thanos. He goes, this is not real love. Think about that. Real love doesn't take somebody's life. Real love lays down their life for another. Does that sound familiar? 
Jesus said, there is no greater love than this, that a man lay down his life for a friend. Friends, arguably the most epic film ever is a movie about love. And it's that to love somebody is to sacrifice your life. That's why Vision says to Scarlet Witch, she goes, take the stone out of my forehead. I will lay down my life for everybody. For a friend. That's right. In that case, in that world, it was for everybody, like Jesus did ultimately for everybody. Do you see the power of this? I don't think, I don't know, I could be wrong. I don't think the creators of Infinity War got together 10 years ago and said, let's climax with a story that's at the heart of the gospel. I don't think they did that. I would love to be proven wrong. I don't think they did that. What I think they said is, let's tell the greatest story we can tell. You know what C.S. Lewis said? He said, you have these stories of these dying and rising gods and sacrifice throughout the history of literature because God is preparing our hearts for not when it takes place in fiction like Infinity War or Endgame, but for when it takes place in history. And God actually pays the ultimate price, lays his life down as a sacrifice because of love. Isn't that amazing? So as we get to this resurrection season and you see this movie coming out, engage people in conversation about it. Ask them, what do you think real love is? What do you think the value of a human life is? What do you think the ethic is at the heart of this movie? And who do you think Jesus was? Because Jesus isn't the fictional figure of Captain America who will die in the next one, by the way, as a sacrifice. Mark my words. I don't have any insight. I'm just following the arc of his character. He will die and lay down his life. He has to. But he's a fictional character. Jesus did this in real life. Friends, the death and resurrection of Jesus, it's about a God who loves us and who will literally sacrifice everything to be in relationship with you and to be in relationship with me. You know why we see it in Infinity War? Because there's something in our hearts that yearns for that kind of love. We yearn for that kind of courage. We yearn for that kind of sacrifice. The Christian story is not fiction. It's actually true. Jesus has risen from the grave and changed everything. Amen? Amen.